probably <clears throat> most of you realize that since the retreat began, uh, especially regarding the work on samadhi, essentially there have been a few very simple basic ideas that we've been warming up and serving over to you each day, sometimes adding a little different spice or dipping it in honey, but the ideas have been a few really, a few basic ones, and we've been repeating them over and over again. Is that your understanding of it? (laughs) Or do you think that there's been all this fresh new stuff that you're learning? The idea of samadhi is a simple one. The carrying out of it can be difficult uh, exactly because it is so simple. And that's why we need to reinforce and support and come at this very basic process in so many different ways, which are really the same way. For example, we've been suggesting that you follow the breath or accompany it with Budo or whatever, but it's essentially to select one object out of this very rich universe of possibilities and to devote yourself to that object, to the breath, to let the world of very rich and complex possibilities go. Not only that, we've suggested that if you can, station your attention. Find out where the best place is to station your attention. For most people, it's the nose, the abdomen. Some people are at the chest. And it's been suggested that once you find where you'd like to be, where you'd like to concentrate your attention and to stay there, even though your interest in the breath at that particular place will vary from sitting to sitting. There's no place that you're going to pick that will be the perfect place to watch the breath from sitting to sitting, from here to eternity. So what all that we're asking is that you find something that's reasonable, settle down, and begin to pay attention through thick and thin. So you have one object and now it's in one place and it's the summertime and all the possibilities of, you know, talking and bicycling and playing tennis and swimming and eating and so many things that we could do that we know how to do that we have done and that we assure you you will do again (laughs) possibly even better hopefully a little carrot there So that's asking a lot of a person to relinquish, in a sense, as we pointed out last night or a few nights ago, to renounce, in a certain sense, to renounce the world. And that, in a sense, uh, gives it a religious or spiritual context. It's not simply a concentration exercise that you can do in, let's say, a gym somewhere. or I mean, you could, of course. But it has subtle implications. The whole practice is about bringing attention to such a point of intensity 
meditation to such a, an intensity that we can use it to free ourselves from being, the mind can free itself from being under the control of the world. That's what we're learning. It doesn't mean that we go up in a poof. We still remain in the world. Right now, so much of our life is dominated by the world as represented by the Kilesas, our three friends who make a brief visit every evening. Greed, hatred, and delusion. By and large, the mind follows the moods of the Kilesas. Sometimes we're dominated by greed and we're grabbing at this and grabbing at that. Other times we have a lot of aversion to things and unawareness or delusion is quite present all the time. When you're doing walking meditation and you're quite alert and then all of a sudden you start daydreaming and wandering off and thinking about this and thinking about that. Uh, Perhaps you've walked many paces Well, at that point, the kilesa of unawareness has grabbed your mind and it's pulled, snatched it away. That kilesa was powerful in that moment, has snatched your attention away and has weakened the practice in that moment. The exertion, the effort that we're making is suddenly um, interrupted and we're walking more like a robot. And as some of you must know, we've become very practiced so that we can look as if we're actually very holy. (laughs) We look like we're very holy as we're walking. The eyes are downcast in just the right way now that you know that that's what we're all looking for. (laughs) And the demeanor is very pious and religious. (laughs) And it's pure robot just walking along there because, because unawareness has snatched the mind away and mindfulness is gone or minimized. And the retreat has, I think, uh, in reflecting tonight, there have been more than any retreat I can remember, uh, I don't know about doing, but certainly teaching. Uh, We've had to say no to so many things. You know, it's become a kind of joke. There have been so many different things that people have wanted to do. Here's the most recent one. And I really don't know if the people are serious or putting me on, but it amounts to the same thing. For those of you who have not been here for the entire retreat, there have been many notes, and I've had to make many comments about button up your shirts, don't bring beepers in here, take that perfume off and aftershave lotion off, don't talk in the kitchen, don't talk in the dishwashing room, Please don't bicycle because it makes it gives the place a kind of festive health spa <laughs> atmosphere. And there, there's more that goes on and on. Some people just never give up. Here's this one. What about love notes between one another? Notes full of compassion, tenderness, and loving kindness. Now, you know, I don't want to be a bad guy. (laughs) And say that we only care about following the breath. We have no interest in loving kindness or tenderness or love, for that matter. Or couples or anything else. Just follow your breath. But I think that's what we are saying. (laughs) 
temporarily. So you can have real love, real affection, real loving kindness, and a really good relationship. That ought to get you. No? No one believes me. (laughs) Okay. So it's a a difficult endeavor, uh, attempting to re-educate the mind so that it can stay in one place. All of those divergent energies that are scattered converge around the breath and then move into some form of stillness. And certain practical um, observations can be of help as we move on. Some of what I'm saying I'm somewhat reviewing from the other evening uh, and some just some unfinished stuff. As you follow the breath, you can begin to notice that, if it's so, that perhaps you lose the breath less often, or at least you have periods where there are fewer gaps. The continuity is greater. And perhaps you also notice, uh, at least sometimes, that when the mind wanders, as it does, and we get caught up in something else, there's a tendency, these are just general tendencies that I'm pointing out, there's a tendency to pick up on it more quickly, to realize that, oh, I'm not with the breath, and to come back. Perhaps some of you have seen that. Perhaps you're seeing those are two very concrete steps, concrete observations that one can make about their own practice. Because that's what happens. Quite simply, there is more continuity after a while. You're able to be with breaths more in a row, in an uninterrupted way. And when you're taken away, uh, something in us begins to know it more quickly. Begins to grasp that we've been taken away and then it comes back. As you watch your breath, perhaps you're finding that there's a tendency to wander more on the out-breath than on the in-breath or the other way around. If this is so, then a little bit of extra attention, to if you see that you have that tendency, let's say it's on the out-breath, then just a little bit of extra attention on the out-breath can make quite a difference. Now, every time we are attentive, we're mindful to even one in-breath or one out-breath, it's worthwhile. It's a very humbling activity, this coming back over and over again. Um, it's beginning anew each time. Sometimes we've been caught up for quite a length of time, and then we come back and we begin again. We begin again many, many times, and the challenge is to remain fresh so that each in-breath, each mindful, each out-breath is experienced in a mindful way then and there in that moment simply because that's the current breath. This is the one that occupies present time. And those are the building blocks out of which the samadhi develops. A breath here and a breath there over a period of time starts to grow and before you know it a different kind of energy is available to you. Some of the training, I hope, is beneficial in its utter simplicity because of the complexity of our, of, of our lives for most of us. Just having this one thing to do and do well over and over again uh, can bring a certain amount of joy, especially as it gets going. 
And that can be quite instructive when we realize that happiness isn't necessarily having lots of things or an enormous variety in every sphere of life. It really doesn't necessarily have to do with that at all. It has to do with the quality of consciousness that we bring to whatever is happening. Often when we're happy, something good happens to us and we attribute the happiness to the object. Actually, the object has released us from certain kinds of scatteredness and preoccupations and enables us to tap a happiness that's there and available to us at all times. Okay. I think I'd like to begin to move in a somewhat different direction now. Some of you have been asking questions about samadhi and vipassana, shamatha and vipassana, some confusion about the difference, about when you do one and when you do the other. And I uh, would like to begin to clarify that as best I can. And as the retreat begins to wind down, we still have quite a bit of time left and often the the nectar of a retreat comes when you least expect it. So it's not that we should ease up, but we're starting to have a bit more peace available and we're starting to accept the fact that indeed we are here and we're probably going to be here till the end of the retreat. And some of the worries have gone away, or at least have thinned out. Let me start, uh, make the bridge between uh, the emphasis on samadhi, which has been a lot, as you know, uh, and start to shift it into a more balanced view of samadhi and vipassana. We began that uh, actually last night in a small way, and then uh, actually this, this morning a bit. There's a story in uh, ancient India. This story has been very helpful to me. That's probably why I tell it a lot. And that's why some of you have to hear it a lot. There was a king in ancient India who was also an enlightened being. And one person was amazed at that thought that to be remarkable that this person was had all the responsibilities and duties of being a king and also was liberated. And so he went to the king and asked if he could learn that particular yoga that this king seemed to have mastered. And so the king gave him his first assignment, which was to go through all the many rooms of the palace with a, a big container of hot oil balanced on his head. And the the requirement was to go through every room of the palace without dropping one uh, bit of oil. And so the person went through every room of the palace with the bowl balanced on his head and accomplished that. And came back quite proud of this accomplishment and said, okay, I did it. And then the king said, well, can you tell me anything about the intrigues going on in the palace? You know, secret love affairs, political 
secret things that are starting up all over the place. Gossip, trouble, problems, who's staying where. And the person looked at him uh, dazed, said, I don't know the answer to any of that. I've been just so concerned with balancing this pot of hot oil and getting through each room without spilling anything that I haven't noticed anything that's going on. Some of you already see where it's going. (laughs) Well, then I don't have to finish it. (laughs) So the king said, now that you have learned how to balance that and go through all the rooms, go through the palace again. And this time when you come back, give me a full report about what's going on there. The first is, is uh, Samadhi, Shamatha, is just keeping the mind on one thing so that it's, uh, it collects itself. It settles down and it becomes more calm. Taking that calmness that we've developed by placing our attention on this one thing and then investigating the way things are, looking at any aspect of life really, nothing is exempt, that's more, we've now started to move more into vipassana. If you were to follow the breath, you could learn both of these. Sometimes people think that uh, samadhi is the breath and vipassana is everything other than the breath. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with a, a mode of attention. So there's the way of samadhi and there's the way of vipassana and they can operate on the same object. Perhaps to make that clear, let's take the breath, since we've been working with that a lot for the last few days. In the samadhi practice, as you know, you come back to the breath, and we've tried to emphasize keeping it simple, that is not loading the mind up with a lot to do. The emphasis is more on the continuity of attention. You're with the breath. Your mind wanders away. You come back. And the emphasis is on that coming back so that more and more there's a continuous flow of attention. The mindfulness has fewer and fewer gaps. And so the breath is a very beautiful object to do that with. It's always there. It's recurrent. It changes a lot just to make things interesting. Sometimes it's very nice and easy to be mindful of it. Other times, not so easy, even painful, even feels restricted. But nonetheless, that's what you do. And so that's one way, a very good way, to develop calmness, steadiness, a collectedness of mind. Now, we could take this very same breath and by now... uh, working with it in the way of Vipassana. In the way of Vipassana, learn very different things. So much so that you could see the whole practice in an in-breath or an out-breath. Or as Ajahn Sawat uh, told a few of us at tea time, Uh, In ancient times, the Buddha, in the times of the Buddha, some monks attained enlightenment just when they were shaving their hair, their head, and a hair, just one hair, realizing the implications of the hair coming off the head and seeing the entire Dharma in just in that hair and becoming enlightened. Okay, 
we'll go to that in a moment. Otherwise, every, everyone's going to run to get a haircut. It doesn't work that way. Okay. If we were to practice the way of vipassana using the same breath, let's say you're following the breath, and you're with an in-breath, if you really stick to that in-breath from its arising, the moment that it arises, and track it, just be with it until the moment that it fades away, or drops off sharply, however it ends, suddenly the in-breath is over and you have just witnessed one instance of impermanence. You've seen a breath arise and pass away. And then you could do the same thing with an out-breath. You see an out-breath arise and pass away. Now, as the samadhi gets stronger, let's say you were doing a lot of that practice, even one in-breath seems to be made up of a lot of pulsations. It's not as if it's one solid thing, but it's made up of a lot of small, smaller arisings and passings away. Arisings and passings away. So there may be a number of them in what we call one in-breath. And so you begin to see the lack of solidity, at least in the breath. The teaching saying that it's everywhere, but right now we're looking at the breath. There's nothing solid. So you've now used the breath as an instrument to promote the the development of wisdom. And when we walk the way of vipassana, our attempt is to use absolutely everything that happens to us to promote the development of wisdom. It doesn't matter whatever happens to you, no matter how trivial. And it's not limited to the cushion or meditation hall or the forest or any place else. That's really our challenge is to, to use life itself to help us wise up. Supposing in following the breath, we're still now uh, following the way of Vipassana, and you start to examine a breath, breath very carefully, and sometimes you, the feeling tone of the breath is very, very pleasant. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes it feels restricted, not full, not free. Probably we all know that. And you could even say that there's suffering in it. You can feel it. You feel there's something painful or unsatisfactory in this breath right now. Perhaps every one of you has experienced that at least sometimes. At that moment, You've used the breath as an instrument to learn about suffering, about dukkha, about the universality of a kind of psychophysical tension that runs through all of creation. Everything that's alive. Expresses this law. It runs through all of us and it can be very, very subtle when you practice for a longer time than nine days, although it it isn't, strictly speaking, limited to time, the mind can get very, very still and the breath can become very beautiful, like satin or silk, very pleasant. And the body can become light and the mind can become happy and then suddenly you can experience the tediousness of it all. No, not another in-breath another out-breath. It's like 
if it were walking, it was as if you can't stop walking. Say, okay, I've walked for about four or five miles, it feels wonderful, and now I'm ready to relax. Well, no, you have to keep walking forever. It can feel that way with the breath. Suddenly, okay, I've been breathing for a while, it's good, and now I want to take a break. But there's no break. It just keeps happening. In-breath, out-breath, in-breath, out-breath. And even something that feels very, very good because of the repetitive quality, because of the lack of our control over it, there can be a very subtle kind of dukkha tucked inside. And so you can feel that. Or the breath can be wonderful and you're enjoying it and suddenly in a split second it switches and that which you've enjoyed is snatched away from you and suddenly the breath becomes... There's congestion. Some old emotion is aroused and there's a blockage in the chest and suddenly you can't breathe well. And the change from where the breath was so fulfilling and now suddenly it isn't and you're suffering. That's another way in which dukkha is learned. And so now the breath is a a vehicle for the development of wisdom again. Or one of the teachings in Buddhism is of the interdependence of everything. And as you watch the breath very closely, you begin to see that it's totally related to the mind and to the body. And so you'll see a change in the breath and you'll see a corresponding change in the mind. You'll see a change in the breath and the body will change. Suddenly, the breath becomes very light and flows freely and even and deep and the body feels very light and there's not much pain or no pain even though you've been sitting for a long time. Or it can go the other way around. You change your posture and you find a really comfortable sitting posture and suddenly the breath improves. Or you overeat or undereat or get too much sleep or not enough sleep and you start to see how everything is interdependent. And that starts to lead to the third very important area of of investigation in the way of Vipassana and that is seeing that the breath doesn't belong to us. That it lacks selfhood. It lacks an inherent quality to it. It doesn't Uh, it isn't inherently real. It's empty of an inherent meaning. It lacks a real solid core. You start to see that the breath doesn't belong to us, but belongs to nature. It just keeps going the way it wants to and keeps changing. And you see it as a natural phenomenon, no different than the storm outside right now, or anything else really. It's part of some... enormous lawfulness that's unfolding and we're not outside of that process. We are the process. There's nothing outside of the process. And you begin to see, especially if the mind gets calm, actually, not because you've read it a lot in books, you begin to see that there's no breather. You really see there's just breathing or that you're being breathed. But there's no breather. There's no one who's doing the breathing. There isn't a solid, separate entity that is doing the breathing. And you really see it. Well, now, all of this is learned on the breath. The same breath that helped us develop samadhi can also help us develop wisdom. Now, I use the breath because by taking the same thing, I hope it makes it clear that it has to do with the way you look at something. It's, it's a way. 
And that vipassana, of course, can be also developed on the body and on the mind. And there's even a kind of inferential vipassana that can be developed on other people's bodies and minds or anything that you see in life. The degree to which you see impermanence outside of yourself or you see suffering outside of yourself in another person. You see impermanence, let's say, and you see an elderly person or you see someone who you haven't seen for a long time and you see they've gone through so much, so much change. You can infer. There's a kind of uh, an inferred learning that goes on. By and large, not as powerful as the direct vipassana where we learn it on ourselves. Okay. So what do we do now that we have the practice we've been doing since Friday night? I'd like to suggest a few ways to look at how to practice. Samadhi and Vipassana are meant or samadhi and panya, wisdom, are meant to develop together. They move on together. Sometimes people talk as if vipassana is sort of leading the way and the strength of samadhi is in back of it. And that's not untrue. But it really isn't that way. They're both being developed in conjunction. They're they're coordinated. And if you... uh, start to look at even how you've practiced so far without having any suggestions, perhaps you'll begin to see that it's very natural that there's a shifting back and forth between the two. Now, we started on, we emphasize samadhi, as you know, heavily. And one reason for that is that at the beginning, most people, and in the West it's really quite dramatic, uh, really need to develop this quality of mind very, very much. Everyone does. Wherever you go, if you're going to do any kind of wisdom practice, there has to be a certain collectedness to be able to carry out the work of wisdom. And so that's been emphasized to help us calm down and settle down. But from the very first moment that we began to work, it's not as if wisdom has been banned. We all have wisdom. We all also have samadhi to begin with. To hold a glass of water, just to hold it, requires some concentration. If you had no samadhi, you couldn't pick the glass of water up and you couldn't hold it long enough to get a drink. It would just fall right out of your hand. So we all have some development there. And at the outset, we've been emphasizing working on this coming back and developing samadhi. And you all know that. But if you recall... Uh, some of you in interviews and in groups and so forth, when you've asked questions like or uh, reported being disappointed because you've had a very peaceful sitting and then suddenly you come back and it's not a peaceful sitting and you're suffering a lot and the suffering because of the disappointment is keeping you from following the breath, probably what was suggested to you was then, well, then look at the disappointment. 
Now, here is an important principle to understand. If we're trying to develop calm, we can't brutally march the mind into samadhi over and over again, no matter what you think, okay, get back there and do that. That doesn't work. It's contradictory. So, there is a great resolve that's needed, tremendous decisiveness, but it has to be very delicate and soft as well. And it has to take into account when we come up against the brick wall. Or, more common, probably everyone in this room knows this, your body is hurt a lot. So much so that although you heard the instructions about samadhi and you wanted to carry them out, the body just took over. And then, as you know, it was suggested, well then, investigate that. Investigate the discomfort. And when you begin to do that, especially if you start to see it in terms of things like impermanence, or as was suggested, being able to tell the difference between the mind and the body, just to recognize that suffering is going on in that moment is Dharma practice. Oh, I'm suffering in this moment. To know that. So, wisdom has been developed inadvertently in some cases. And all day long, there have been opportunities to do it because the practice here is not just sitting. I don't know if you've been doing it. There's been some encouragement to do it, but now that we're talking more and more about wisdom, uh, it'll be more explicit. For example, and these are, are taken from actual interviews. I didn't make this up. They happen so often Uh, Almost every retreat has an example, an instance of this. You're doing walking meditation, let's say in the the room uh, outside the meditation hall. And it's going beautifully. And you have your lane all staked out. It has your name on it. And suddenly the, the person next, in the next lane, it's a new person. The other person acknowledged that it was your lane. They understood the rules. Here comes this new person in town. Maybe they just arrived at the center and they're not as sensitive as those of us who've been here since Friday. And they start doing their walking, but they're slightly encroaching upon your lane. And there's a tightness in the jaw and a feeling of uneasiness and the shoulders start doing something and the mind starts seeing fault with this person because they're somehow crowding into your definition of your space and your suffering. Now, all they're doing is they're walking meditation the best they know how. And the shift brings some wisdom into that and seeing how the mind in that moment manufactured suffering for itself as it attached to a particular lane, piece of wood as being an extension of itself. This is my lane. I walk here. uh, In my case, when I used to do, I still do self-retreats here, the bowling alley was my favorite place to walk and Uh, at least uh, when the center first started, people didn't seem to walk there much. And so I had it to myself. But every now and then, someone else would take my bowling alley away. Or, have any of you experienced, have you staked out your chair in the dining room? You know, it's where you eat. Some of you like to face outside and see the trees and not have to look at too many people. And, you know, you have your chair. And you get it most of the time, but suddenly one day there's someone else, a total stranger, sitting in your chair. Well, actually, the examples are endless. Wisdom at that moment can see the mind creating 
a problem for itself. This is my chair, what are they doing there? And it can also, of course, release itself. Now, these are very small forms of bondage. You might say insignificant and trivial, but they make up the bulk of life. I mean, we talk about much more dramatic kinds of suffering. Deaths and ends of relationships and loss of job and physical ailments and so forth. Mental ailments. But these small kinds of things really make up a lot of our life. They're not too dramatic. They're not reported, usually. And one of the reasons they're not reported is that we go unconscious during those moments. We just suffer blindly. At that point, wisdom, or to give you a somewhat more technical term, which we'll be using more often, sati and panya, that is, sati is mindfulness and panya is discernment, working together. That is, the uh, mindfulness being placed on an object and kind of the object being seen according to its, its uh, characteristics. So we, we seen according to what's happening. It's a knowing. So that's where the wisdom comes. And the ability to apply that, or let's say the inability to apply that, is a hurt to the heart. And if you recall yesterday, it was suggested that Samadhi is a guardian of the heart, and we went into some of the ways in which it is. And Satipanya is the other one, is a guardian of the heart. Because its wisdom, especially as it becomes more and more part of our life, it's that which supervises how we live. It's watching and discerning what's going on. What is actually happening to me right now? How am I living? And it's in that way that anything can be used to promote wisdom. Now, in order to carry out satipanya, you have to have some samadhi. If there's very little concentration or calm, you're not even going to be able to pay attention to what's happening to you when somebody encroaches upon your walking space. You get lost in it. And so you can see how they, they work together uh, as partners. Okay, so we've been doing that, and now there have been some questions like, well, should I do this for the rest of the retreat? Just work this way, where you basically are doing the samadhi practice, but if something becomes a problem and really intrudes, then you switch and investigate it. You can do that. That's good. You can also... uh, You see, here's where it becomes very, very uh, artful. I can give you a few guidelines, but more and more what's valuable is for you to learn the art of using samadhi and vipassana in your way as your practice unfolds. And I can give you a, a bit of a sense of it. And the rest you'll learn as you do it. You can't do anything forever. I mean, sleep is really welcome when we're very tired. But you don't want to sleep for 25 hours or 40 hours. At a certain point, then sleep becomes suffering and we just want to walk or move. And you can't walk or move forever, so then rest becomes necessary. And it's great to be out in the sun, but at a certain point we have to get into the shade. And it's wonderful to eat, but at a certain point we have to stop. And it's great to talk and laugh and dance, and at a certain point we really want to just be quiet. It's a little bit like that. We also have a right foot and a left foot and a right arm and a left arm. Life is like that and samadhi and vipassana work that way. So that let's say um, someone 
asked the question in one of the interviews that their samadhi had gotten very calm. And then I, there would be a question, well, what's very calm? And that's an important one. And I'll talk, talk to that in a moment. Should I just keep doing samadhi practice right down to the end until Sunday? That would be a wonderful thing to do. That would not be a waste of time. It would be a wonderful way to use your time here, especially since there's so much support to do the samadhi practice here right now. And when you go home, you won't have it. Just staying with that one object. But that same person might, uh, and this did happen, and I said, sure, you can do that. And then the person said, but you know, um, I'm feeling very calm. Uh, the breath is flowing freely. I'm giving you a few indicators. I'm not talking about the consummation of samadhi. I'm talking about uh, a stage of calmness that is within range for us. And perhaps some or many of you have already experienced it. Relatively, the mind is workable. The breath is flowing freely, that's one sign. The body feels light. There are not a huge number of what are called hindrances. That is, there isn't, we're not dominated by either sluggishness and laziness or agitation and restlessness or a lot of doubt about everything or a lot of neediness about things or getting angry. Not too much of that. Suddenly we know, oh, it's kind of uncomplicated. Just breathing. And another good sign that it's happening is you're starting to feel still and there's a bit of happiness. Sometimes you can technically refer to it as rapture and even deeper it's called happiness or joy. But just speaking in ordinary language, you start to feel good. You feel happy and you want to do this practice. This person felt that. And so I said, by all means, you can do it for the, uh, for the remainder of the retreat unless something is a problem. But then he said, but I don't know, I'm kind of itching to do a bit of investigation as well. I'd really like to look at, examine the nature of the body. I've been reading a lot about wisdom and hearing talks and done other retreats here. And so my answer was, fine, then do that. Oh, you mean I can do that? Sure. And I could also do the other thing. Yeah. Now, as you go on, you'll really know it would be valuable to continue the samadhi work, but probably at a certain point, there'll be enough. You'll say, okay, this is great. Everything they say, it's wonderful. I like it. I've had enough. And you may start to examine uh, some sensations, not because anything is intruding, because it's become a problem, but you start, start to, let's say you... Uh, for you, impermanence is very important. You resonate with it. So you start to see impermanence in the body. You start to see the movement of everything, the state of the body changing from moment to moment. and You get to, to learn the nature of a body, that bodies are changing, that they're impermanent. And so that would be a perfectly useful way to use your time and energy. And your mind is a bit more concentrated, and so you're able to do that work. Now, supposing you start to do it and then you find, well, I wanted to do it and I was all enthusiastic, but I kept getting lost in the bodily sensations and it, I couldn't get things in focus for some reason. So what should I do now? You can go back to samadhi and fine-tune the mind again. Do You see, it becomes very artful. Uh, we started out in a kind of a classical way of just taking the one object and really working with it. 
but it's now possible to be more plastic, more flexible. And it mainly depends on you. It's very important to be honest with yourself. There's no particular virtue in doing one or the other, thinking that, well, Vipassana is where it's really at because that's wisdom and that's what uproots. He said yesterday that Samadhi just cuts the grass and Vipassana cuts, takes the roots of the grass out and, well, who wants to just cut the grass? It'll just grow back again. I want to get on to the real, the real thing. But you can't do the real thing unless you learn how to cut the grass. So it's very important to understand that it's not that one is more important than the other. It's that they both need each other and they work together. If you just get locked into one or the other in certain ways, uh, it won't be correct practice and you'll know it after a while. Now, some people uh, apparently do get locked into samadhi, for example, getting all caught up in joy and bliss and rapture. I just don't see that many people. I'm not worried about that. If you have that problem or you think that you know, you're suffering because you have so much bliss, <laughs> just break into either Corrado or my door at any time, day or night, and we'll have an on-the-spot interview. So, it, but it can happen. There's no question that it can happen. And the main sign is, because there's nothing wrong, let's say you do come into some bliss, for goodness sakes, enjoy it. I mean, that's the fruit of your practice. Sometimes we get a little bit too austere about, well, I don't want to be attached to anything because that attachment is bad. And suddenly we feel really happy. We've worked hard at our meditation and here's some fruit. You can be aware and experience the happiness of it all. You don't have to be so worried about getting attached that you don't experience the, the joy of, that comes out of the hard work that you've done. It's very inspiring. It gives you energy. You'll want to practice more. Full speed ahead. But if you start experiencing that joy and then you have absolutely no interest in anything else, what I would call the Aunt Aunt Jenny phenomenon. I have an aunt, may she rest in peace. We were very close. And any time we started to talk in the family about anything that was unpleasant, she would just put her head on the table and just say, I don't want to hear about that. I don't want to hear about that. (laughs) Kind of an ostrich thing. Her son tried for... I don't know, 40 or 50 years to get through to her on certain unpleasant things about his life and she just didn't want to hear about it. She never did, I don't think. So if the samadhi practice becomes that way, where you don't want to use uh, your capacity to learn and to understand and you, want to, and you say you want to practice uh, insight meditation, then of course, then it would be helpful uh, to learn how to release yourself from that and to then investigate. And let's say you're really a hotshot investigator. You've had training in science and you have a mind that likes to investigate and examine and explore or you're a naturalist or whatever it is and you want to do that. I'd like to see you keep just doing that. At a certain point, you'll be tired of seeing impermanence or seeing that there's nobody home. You get tired of that. And then you say, I just want to do some simple samadhi. I'm going to just go back to the breath. What a relief. Just breathe in, breathe out. And then at a certain point, that itself becomes used up. Do you see what I'm getting at? Now, so you have to work artfully. If I had to make a general statement based on beginning to get to know at least about half or two-thirds of you, I would say it'd be wise to keep doing some samadhi work. But you may know something that I don't know. And that's what interviews and, and 
uh, perhaps we'll have some, a discussion group later on in the week, is about. This is The practice has to be made individual. It isn't a kind of a mass-produced, everyone's poured into the same suit or dress. It really has to be custom-tailored. It has to be. Although the principles are the same, the path has to be walked in a very individual way, very idiosyncratic and personal. And you're the one who has to make it personal. And there's a lot of room for moving in different directions, using different techniques, emphasizing one thing or another, and, that, and it's part of the practice. And again, as in everything else in life, it's our old friend mindfulness that helps us out. Because it's mindfulness that's in the middle of everything, and it sees if we're imbalanced. It's mindfulness when it's developed that knows we're getting a little bit tired and it's not working and, or things are fuzzy and out of focus. And it's mindfulness then that can, uh, along with some wisdom, suggest that we do something else to lighten up, to calm down. Do you get a sense of that? Now, there's also another dimension which is a very important one, again, having to do with individual differences. Some people, right at the outset, take quite naturally to samadhi practice. They just love it. Some people like to become obsessed with one thing. They really enjoy that. Or, maybe that's not why, but who knows why. But the samadhi practice is something they take to. There's no resistance to it. And they calm down very, very quickly. And they start feeling happy very, very quickly. Some people don't unfold that way at all. They have resistance to it. Uh, I've had people say, uh, almost as if it's an authority thing, as if like, no one tells me to just be on one object and gets away with it. I'm my own man. I, I follow whatever I want to follow. And I say, I understand, that's the Kalesis talking. What you're calling freedom, I'm calling slavery. But go ahead, be a slave and call it freedom. There is actually that. It's sometimes quite unconscious or not uh, exactly... Uh, within a threshold of, of awareness where we just hate the thought of just having one thing. One person, one meal, one anything, one relationship, it doesn't matter. And suddenly we're brought to, there's only one thing for you to do, it's follow the breath, and we hate it. And we would much rather try uh, examine a wide variety of things. We've had a lot of experience doing that. Or some people have an intellectual bent and have done a lot of inquiry and investigation and actually uh, can do reflection in a good way. And I'm much more drawn to the wisdom side of this partnership and actually can get going in certain ways through reflection and although it's not strong enough because there isn't enough samadhi, some useful understandings can come about which then can lead to some calmness. Now, whichever one you may think you are at this moment, it also changes so that the, uh, there are a lot of surprises and if you get comfortable with that one it's a big help some people who start off who get the samadhi right away they love it there's no resistance emotional resistance and they get very calm quickly often uh, later on it becomes hard for them to do it in other words it's very easy for a certain period of time months or even years and then suddenly without un- any way of understanding it becomes difficult and other people who find it difficult, suddenly there's a, a sitting or a day and something clicks and from that point on there's no problem with samadhi. They just go deeper and deeper into it. It's not that we have to investigate all of this stuff so much. 
It's more to just, just being in the moment and being honest with ourselves is what helps us. Now, I just want to um, finish up. I'm going to do this. We're going to spill over into interview time a little bit, not much, I hope, because it will lay some of the groundwork for some, something that Corrado is going to do tomorrow night. And to give you... Uh, I would feel there's a lot more, of course, that could be said about samadhi, but this is an important application of it that I think you need to know about. Samadhi is beneficial for any, any practice that we do. And in this approach, in the Buddhist approach, uh, there are roughly three kinds of learning that we do. One is conceptual, intellectual, kind of a mastery of ideas, can be philosophic, learning the Dharma that way can be extremely important. And then a second level, reflections, that is taking these ideas, pondering them in a very deep way, chewing on them, and learning from them. And that also is a, is a bit of wisdom. And then finally, the deepest way is through meditation, which is what we're doing. All three are needed. All three are interrelated. What I'd like to finish tonight up with is to talk about these reflections, different kinds of meditation. Karada will be leading us tomorrow night in a metta meditation. The degree to which your samadhi has developed during these past four or five days if, it, if your mind has become a little bit more one-pointed, a little bit more calm, uh, you'll find that when you apply yourself to the metta meditation, you may find that it goes more deeply than it has for you in the past. Metta is loving-kindness, for those of you who are new here. And so, the samadhi practice has benefits in every other kind of dharma practice that we do. Similarly, if you were to reflect on death, there's a very important practice in um, this approach to reflect on our own death, to reflect on the notion of death in general and also on our own death. And the whole art of, is of mixing the samadhi in with whatever it is you're reflecting on. So that if your samadhi is strong and you reflect on death, you can penetrate to a deeper grasp of the notion that I will die at some point. I definitely will die. If there's weak samadhi, there's still some value in reflecting on it. Now, I'm not, uh, what I'm talking about is reflecting on an idea, a situation, a possibility. And out of that, that's wisdom work too, of a certain kind. And so as samadhi gets deeper, there's another benefit that can come to us from particular reflections. And I, one ha- uh, happened to me recently, just to give you a sense of how uh, practical having a more calm and concentrated mind can be. Um, there's a kind of home-style, old-style restaurant that existed in Cambridge for many, many years. Um, a long time. It was really from another time period. Nothing plastic about it at all. Kind of the people who came there, some of you know it, it was across the street from the Brattle Theater, if that means anything to you. And many of us ate there a lot. Uh, So it it was a kind of a local joint, a place to come and go and meet with your friends and so forth. And I was away for a while and I came back 
to Cambridge and I was walking along the place where this restaurant was and suddenly there was an extremely chic new dress shop, a huge one, and it was right where this restaurant had been. Now, I knew that they were uh, being forced out and were going to sell, but I didn't, but then I dropped it. It isn't something that's on my mind all the time. And coming back, suddenly seeing uh, an extremely uh, modern, uh, the models in the windows, very abstract models, you know, that, I don't know, some people think they're attractive, they're kind of frightening, you know, sort of, <laughs> you, you look at them, and they have these new clothes on them, but at any rate, it was a shock, because where that restaurant was, suddenly this dress shop was, and it's not that I'm against the dress shop, it's just that it was there, and Uh, something that was obstinately familiar, that was permanent, wasn't. And my mind started to work. And right then and there, I just sat down on a bench and dropped into some degree a little bit more calm and steady than I was and just explored it, just explored the kind of putting them both together, juxtaposing them, putting the old restaurant and this together, understanding the very same space that How's the restaurant? Now how's this? The animated things that went on in the restaurant, they were over. They were just echoes. And now new excitement was in this place. People coming in and shopping, coming out with new purchases and uh, bright lights and more life going, going on. Totally different. Totally the same. And if there's samadhi in back of the reflection, you mix whatever the content is with the samadhi and there's a going deeper into it. It's a little bit like Adolf's tenderizer, you know? You kind of, it tenderizes your mind a little bit so that you're a little bit more open to the notions like impermanence. It starts to finally get through to you. I get it, everything's impermanent. Yeah, that's what people have been saying for years now. Oh, so uh, why don't we leave it at that tonight? it's the beginnings of the, another phase in the practice, and if you're confused or have questions about how you should practice, uh, there'll be opportunities to work that out. Uh, why don't we just have a few moments' silence? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.